So it was last weekend that my brother-in-law, Adrian, and I, the guy who was just leading worship there, we, we were texting one another and talking about maybe going fishing that afternoon. Now, I was performing a wedding Saturday morning at Philippi Park, and, uh, and that afternoon, or lunchtime-ish afternoon, the reception was there at the Safety Harbor Spa. And uh, we were kind of texting back and forth, there's that pier uh, that goes out right next to the Safety Harbor spot. We'd never gone fishing there before. And so we said, hey, how about after the wedding, let's just go fishing. It'll be a great day to spend our afternoon. And so as soon as like the cake was cut, we were gone. And uh, we, we went ahead, we got our fishing gear, you know, our, our junkie clothes on and, uh, and walked out with, with our poles there and went to the very end of, of the dock, the pier there. And, and we're fishing and we catch some stuff, nothing great, nothing that we could keep. And, uh, um, but, but we're out there about two hours. And, and after a while, these three guys show up and, and they walk on out to the end of the, the pier where we are. They've got all sorts of rope kind of rigging. And before you know it, they have rigged up three hammocks and I'm going, I have some mad respect for those guys. That is cool. And, uh, and so these guys have set up three hammocks, the end of the pier. They are lounging and chilling in those hammocks. Um, just overhearing their conversation, I realized they're probably working off a high. Uh, maybe they had a little something, something before they went out there. And this is how they're going to spend their afternoon. And, and, uh, and so we're just fishing on. They're chilling. And, uh, and opposite corner of us is another guy who's there fishing. And he's putting down beers like they are going out of style. I mean, that's, he's enjoying his afternoon and everything's great, peaceful, fun, until another guy shows up and he's got his fishing gear. And I overhear him, I uh, hear he's about 25 years old, looks pretty rough around the edges. And, and he's out there and walks into the pier and all of a sudden he notices and recognizes one of the guys in the hammock. And uh, he looks at him and he starts flipping out. He says, you better get out of here. I'm going to fight you. And I mean, and he starts calling the guy all types of names. He's like, and you robbed my best friend at my grandma's house. And, you know, I don't know how that worked out, but, but he's like going off. He's like, and you stole my drugs. That came out too. And, um, and, uh, and all of a sudden the drunk guy, he's getting involved. And Adrian and I are looking at each other like, we're going to see a fight between three stoners, a druggie and a drunk. And it's... it's this is crazy. <laughs> What's going on here? And I mean, they're just throwing words back at each other. And, and uh, eventually no punches are thrown or anything like that. And the three guys in hammocks, they pick up their gear and they leave. And in, in the meantime, the druggy guy is just stomping around the pier going, you know, man, it's a good thing I didn't want to go to jail today or I would have fought all three of those guys. And the drunk's like, yeah, you would have beat him up. And, uh, <laughs> and, and I turn to my brother-in-law at that point. I'm like, does anybody ever wake up wanting to go to jail today? I mean, is it like... Monday, Wednesday, Thursdays, those are my jail going days. But lucky for you, it's Saturday. You know, I, I'm just, what is going on here? And uh, all of a sudden, moments later, the, the drunk guy, he's got something on his fishing line. And he reels up this big stingray. And so we're like, that is cool. And so he brings a stingray, he cuts it up, uses it for bait, throws it back out there, and moments later catches a shark. There's about a four-foot bonnet-head shark there circling down at the end of the pier. And by this time, a crowd has formed around this, this guy and his shark. And, uh, and his new best friend, the druggie, says, Hey, if you want, I'll hold your pole and you can go down and get the shark. And the drunk guy goes, 
Well, yeah. And, uh, and so we are just, we're done fishing at this point. You know, we, we, a crowd has formed around. We watch this guy climb over the railing, down into the water. There's a shark circling around, trying to bite him. I mean, you can see the teeth going after the drunk guy. He reaches in, grabs the shark by the dorsal fin, pulls it up, yells to Adrian and I says, Hey guys, watch out. I'm going to throw the shark up there. <laughs> Which is exactly what he does. He takes the shark and he throws it up over the railing. There is a four-foot shark flopping on the deck. Everybody kind of backs up at that point. The guy climbs back up, starts cutting it up. I'm going, hey, are you going to eat that? And he's like, yeah, it's good eating. And the crowd starts dispersing at this point. And, uh, and Adrian and I, we, we, we pack up our stuff. We're like, who ever said fishing was boring? I mean... This is crazy. And, and we're walking back to the car and we're like, can you believe how crazy people are or, or better how stupid people are? And, and then there's kind of a pause within our conversation. And they, I say, hey, do you want to go fishing here again? And Adrian's like, absolutely. We're coming back. This is, man, there is something about crazy stuff happening that just draws a crowd, that just entertains and as we're reading through the Gospel of Matthew, as we're reading through the life and ministry of Jesus, we, we're hitting chapter 5 today. And at this point in time, the, you know, Jesus has done some crazy things. I mean, that's what he did. He would create spectacle. And then it would draw hundreds and eventually thousands of people. And when we hit Matthew chapter 5, Jesus has a crowd of a thousand people. I mean, this is the guy who changed water into wine. This is the guy who can fish like nobody's business. He just says, hey, put the net over there. And there's like hundreds of fish. This is the guy who can heal the sick. And so now there's thousands of people hanging on his every word. And so Jesus has to go to a high place. And he delivers, in in three chapters in your Bible, Matthew 5 through 7, he delivers the greatest sermon ever told. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, if you got your Bibles, open them up to chapter 5, verse 21. Last week, we, we kind of gone through the Beatitudes, and that's kind of a nice part of the message. Now Jesus starts flipping the script. Jesus starts just really shaking things up. And uh, we're going to look at a passage today. I do want to let you know, next week, Kurt's going to talk on, on the next passage, which deals with family and marriage, which is a timely subject, especially with all the things going on in our country right now. So I definitely want to make sure you're here next week to hear what Kurt's got to say on that. But, but if, if you look at it, Jesus kind of starts with this Old Testament passage that you're probably familiar with. It's in verse 21. Jesus says, Now you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. And you've probably heard that before. I mean, you go back to the Ten Commandments, thou shall not murder. They've heard it a ton. In fact, as Kurt talked about last week, you had the scribes and the Pharisees, and they love to go over the rules, and then the rules on top of the rules. And so probably at this point of the message, the vast majority of Jesus' audience is going, well, I can kind of sit back and relax on this one. I haven't murdered anyone. I haven't killed anybody unjustly, which is what the passage is talking about. And maybe you're sitting there this morning and go, hell, I could take, I could take a break on this one. I, you know, I, no big deal. And, and, uh, and, and you know what? You're, you're in good company. Less than 1% of 1% of, uh, the, of, of United States population has homicide somewhere on the record. And so, so for most of us, we're going, well, I've never done that, so no big deal. Got that commandment down. But Jesus kicks it a whole nother level with the verse. He goes this. He says, but I tell you, that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. 
Anybody in here ever get angry? I mean, some of you are going, yeah, like three times this morning. You know, it's, it happens. And Jesus brings up the law. He brings up the law to kind of, uh, well, the point of the Old Testament law wasn't that you would keep it. Only Jesus was the only person who kept the Old Testament law. See, the point of the law wasn't necessarily that you keep it, but that it could kind of, you could compare yourself to it, or you kind of get an idea of where you stand in it or where you miss the mark. In other words, we have law. We have Florida law. If you were to go to uh, chapter uh, 741, the statutes in chapter 41 of, of Florida state law, um, the statutes over there, they, they might hinder you from abusing your spouse or your spouse abusing you. But it cannot make you love your wife. See, the point of the law, it might prevent you from doing something. It, it might affect your behavior, but it wouldn't necessarily define your character. It may be something you don't do, but it doesn't necessarily reflect who you are. And so Jesus takes this law and he pushes it a whole nother level saying, I'm a little more concerned about what's going on in here. Yeah, maybe you haven't murdered, but have you gotten angry with your brother or sister? And uh, you may be sitting here and still thinking, hey, I'm off the hook this morning. I don't have an anger problem. I'm a pretty mellow person. I don't get upset too easily. Uh, and I thought the same thing until about three weeks ago when I was thinking about this message and preparing this message. And I was also getting ready for our family vacation uh, where we would drive in the family van from um, Florida all the way out to Texas and back. And about two days before the trip, I'm putting air in, our, in the tires of the family van and I realize, oh no, um, we're going to have to replace at least two of the tires. The tread's just kind of low. That's not safe. And so there was some money I wasn't planning to spend, you know, before the trip. And so, so I make an appointment the next day to get uh, the air, air in the tires. And, uh, and it was the day before our vacation that I go to shock the pool, and I flip on the pool pump, and there's a big spark, and it dies. <laughs> and I have to replace the pool pump. And that was some more money I was not planning to spend, you know, before vacation. And that was fine until the day of vacation. We're driving from Florida to Texas, about three hours into our trip, the air conditioning on our van dies. <laughs> that was about the point of time of the trip where I realized I might have an anger problem. <laughs> the, the point of time, you know, I'm going, why God, with the windows rolled down, 92 degrees outside, you know, kids were not talking the rest of the trip. I mean, this is it's just mad. You know, my wife, I'm sure, is praying for me over in the corner, you know, I it just... Oh, why? It didn't go my way. I'm just frustrated for hours, mad, angry. And it really was hours until little perspective kind of entered into my head going, you know, Tom, you've been on mission trips. You know, there's third world countries where people are driving in 92 degree heat without AC all the time. I mean, some of you have lived in Florida before the golden age of air conditioning. And, you know, you've done that as well. I'm thinking, when I was in college, I drove in Florida without air conditioning in July. And, uh, and it's amazing, though, what we get angry about. And you may say, well, Tom, is it wrong to get angry? I mean, Jesus got angry at times. God gets angry at times. There is such thing as righteous anger. Uh, some of you may have even experienced that this week with everything going on. I mean, there's some things to, that where God says, I'm upset about this, you can be upset about this, but, but most of our anger isn't God-focused. Or in line with most of our anger we experience is self-focused. It's because things didn't go the way we planned them. It's because I don't want that to happen, or, 
Or that person rubbed me the wrong way, and so I get angry. And you say, well, Tom, is, is it a sin to get angry? Well, no, emotions in themselves are not moral. But the thing about anger is it can so quickly lead to sin. It can so quickly. So, so what Jesus is dealing with, he may say, you may not have literally killed somebody, murdered them, but anger is the root of murder. And do you even have any of that residing within you? Because it will come out. Think about anger. It quickly becomes dangerous. And so he brings it to the next passage uh, of Scripture there. He says, um, And anybody who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. Now, you may be thinking, oh, I'm off the hook again. I've never said Raka to anybody. And uh, whew, that was easy, you know. Um, and, and, the re- and it probably says Raka in your Bible because we don't have one word that fully encom- uh, that encompasses all that Raka stands for and meant at that time. It's an Aramaic word. And, and from my research, the, the best I can English translate it for you is it, it would be as if you were to look into somebody's eyes and you were to call them a worthless son of a beasting. You, you know the word. And then throw in a racial slur on top of that. It's a pretty vicious term. It was a dehumanizing term. It was a term, a phrase born out of pride, where you would say, I know I am better than you. <laughs> I, I know I am of higher value than you are. You are of little value. You, you, it's it, raka. It was the, the kind of the sound you would make if you were hawking a loogie. <laughs> In fact, the word itself, it was tied to the idea of spit. It was you were calling somebody worthless. You are spit. It, it, it was a term where you would, you would devalue somebody out of anger. Something erupted in you, and you would just say that to somebody. It's a pretty brutal, pretty brutal word. And uh, most often, it was born out of uh, racism. Most often, it, it, it kind of has its origin in something you would say if you were Jewish to a Gentile, a non-Jew. Raka, I know I'm better than you. Because I'm of the Jewish race, and you're not. You're different. And I, Let me just tell you for a second. If, if you've got any bit of the racism within you, Jesus is going to tell you to deal with it pretty quick because heaven is really going to be a struggle for you. I mean, if you've got any prejudice, it is. Because what we know about heaven, it's filled with every tongue, tribe, and nation. And I'll just tell you, you and me, white guy, we are a minority in heaven. Statistically, if you think of, uh, of all, all the, uh, the Christians and the races that have died over the years and gone to heaven, white people are a minority. In fact, Christianity within the United States collectively makes up 11%. 11% is what we make up of global Christianity. We are 11% of Christians today. And, and we'll sit in here and we'll argue worship preferences. Like, should worship be more guitar-driven or should it be more piano-driven? And have you heard how they worship over in Africa? Because it sounds way different and there's way more Christians in Africa than there are collectively in the United States. So it's probably time to find some rhythm and grab a djembe and join in the party because heaven's not going to be one big Chris Tomlin concert. <laughs> it, it's going to be way better. I'm just telling you. 
And, and that's the point, to, to deal with this now, to deal with this now, because it, it's, it's about getting over ourselves. It, the beautiful thing, I'll just say too, the beautiful thing about Christianity is we're the one religion where you're not trying to get everybody to look like you, dress like you, sound like you. You know, that's not what heaven is, a bunch of people who all look alike. Heaven's a place where everybody knows the same person, where we're all excited about worshiping Jesus. And so Jesus says, hey, if you've got any bit of this and it begins to leak out, you need to deal with that. In fact, you, you are subject to the court if you dehumanize somebody with your words. If you speak words of death into somebody else's ears, you are answerable to the court. Now, the court, if you were in a small town, it was made up of about seven men. If you're in a large city, about 23 men. This was the court that decide, got to decide if you got to live or die. And they loved to decide it when you died. They loved when they got somebody for murder. I mean, because murder by law, it was always the state. If you murder somebody, then it was the death penalty. And they loved to make it public. And they loved to make it torturous. They loved to do beheadings. They loved to do stoning all in front of the people. In fact, one of their favorite ones was to half strangle you and pour melted lead down your throat. And everybody got to watch. And they go, this is what happens to a murderer. And Jesus is saying, if you may not have killed somebody literally, but if you have killed them with your words, this is what should happen to the murderer with words. Jesus pushes it a step further in the next part of the verse. He says, and anyone who says, you fool, will be in, the, in danger of the fires of hell. Now, it's not the literal word, you fool, okay? I mean, if it is, Mr. T is going to hell. I mean, pity the fool. I mean, it's not going to work out well for him. It's... It's, it's the word moros. It's, it's, it's the word, it's there in Aramaic. Then in the Greek, it's, it's actually considered a worse term than raka. It, it, from, from what I can gather, it's like taking, it'd be maybe like taking our F word and combining it with our A word and giving somebody that title. That you would get mad at them. You would call them this. What you were doing, you were not only de- diminishing their humanity, diminishing their value, you were also calling them a crook. You weren't just questioning their intelligence. You were attacking their character, their heart. You were saying they were evil or they had ill intent or they were a cheat. And it wasn't like they had credit scores back then. If somebody got upset at you and, and said raka to you and or called you moros and, and this got out, well, all you had was your name and your honor. You rubbed them the wrong way. They got angry and they identified you like this and word got around it would literally affect your business. It would literally affect the amount of food you had to place on your family's table that night. In this case, when you would, even if it's out of anger, speak these words of death into someone's ears, you were affecting the prosperity of their life. You were literally killing them with your words. And Jesus is going, have you ever thought about the words you use? Because the thing is, these words, these were, these were potent words. Okay, I mean, I'm sure the audience was pretty shocked at what Jesus is saying in this moment. I mean, here's a nice Old Testament sermon, and Jesus starts saying, you know, if you haven't murdered, uh, that's, you know, that's good you haven't murdered. But if you say to your brother, bleepity bleep, mother bleep, and they're going, whoa, it just turned into an NWA concert here. What's going on? I mean, they are shocked. And, and, and it's not that they haven't heard these words before. And it's not that they haven't even said these words before. They just weren't expecting the preacher to say these words. And Jesus is going, have you just thought for a second the words we use when we talk to one another, 
the phrases we use to describe one another, the, the words that we've used and let, allowed to enter into our culture, into our town, into our homes, and we say it's okay, they're just words. And, but he's going, have you ever thought about what you're really saying to somebody else? Uh, several years back in my youth ministry days, I, I led a trip over to Chile, and I brought several teenagers with me, and, um, and we were working with the Chilean teenagers there in Chile, and I, I got learn all sorts of Spanish words, and I asked them, what's the word for cool? And so, uh, so they told me, and so for, for the rest of that week, I'm using this word going, hey, you know, you're way cool, man, or that's so cool, or, you know, stay cool, and, uh, but using that Chilean uh, word there. And, and by the end of the week, the missionary kind of pulls me aside, and he says, hey, I, I noticed you've been saying this word, and I know our teenagers use this word, but just so you know, um, it's, it's a derivative of another word, kind of like saying darn or dang, except it's more like a derivative of your F word, <laughs> but more violent. <laughs> and that's where I'm playing like the week back in my head. And I'm going, how many times did I say, hey, man, stay cool. But I'm going, hey, stay violent sex, dude. You know, you are way violent sex. Hey, keep it violent sex, you know. Have we ever just thought about the words we use and what they mean and what we're actually saying to one another? That's what Jesus is trying to get us to think about. Don't get lost in what you haven't done. Think about what you've said. And you may say, Tom, well, I don't cuss. I I don't say any curse words. It doesn't have to be a curse word to devalue somebody's life, to let somebody else know that you could care less for them, that you could care whether or not they existed. Have you ever said, I hate you? Have you ever said, I wish you were dead? Or, I want a divorce? Or, I wish we never had you? Or, I wish you weren't my parents? You may say, Tom, yeah, I've I've said those things, but I was angry. I got a short temper. How we respond is always our responsibility. If I'm at a restaurant, the waitress dumps a drink on me, and I just cuss her up one side or the other. She didn't make me say those words. What was inside of me simply came out. You see, in the New Testament Greek, there's actually two different Greek words um, used to describe anger. One is thermos, and it's the idea of this instant, instantaneous anger, and the other one is orgus. And orgus is what Jesus is talking about in this text. Orgus is this anger that somehow found itself within you, and it hasn't been dealt with. It's been sitting there. You might not even known it was there. And it starts building, and it starts building. And all it is doing is waiting for an opportunity to come out. And Jesus is going, if you have any of this within you, it's only going to build and build and get worse. And so he leads us into the next part of the text, into verse 23, he says, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother and sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. In other words, it, traditionally, if you're Jewish and you're bringing a gift to the altar, you, most often you were asking God to forgive a sin that you had just committed. And God's going, before you come asking for my forgiveness, you need to go be reconciled over there. You need to go give some forgiveness or ask for some forgiveness for over there with this situation with your neighbor or your relative or your coworker or your fellow human being. God's saying, before you come and worship me any further, 
You need to reconcile. You need to reconcile. You need to deal with this now because it's only going to get worse. He continues in verse 25. He says, Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way. Or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. In other words, Jesus is saying, it's not like it's going to get better. If you don't deal with this now, it will only build. It will only get worse. It will only cause more hurt, more pain. It will, in the long run, only cost you more. Jesus puts the mirror to our face and says, let's find out where the dirt is and let's deal with that because if we don't deal with it now, it'll only get worse. You see, the point of Jesus' message isn't that we're gonna get it perfect. That's God. He's the good, good father who's perfect in all his ways. But the thing about Christians is, yeah, we mess up probably as much or more the non-Christians. We do. We mess up. But the things that define us as Christ followers is that when we mess up, we get back up and we still try and head in the right direction. And uh, I mean, the, the point is this. If we can't be reconciled, then it will only get worse. In the New Testament, they use this greeting to one another over and over. You could see it all in Paul's writings, all through the text. They would greet each other. They would say, grace and peace to you. And it would always be in that order. Grace and peace to you. And never be peace and grace to you. No, the idea was you can never have peace unless you are first willing to give somebody grace. And as Kurt said last week, we all like God's grace. The problem is we often have a hard time giving it out. Grace is a gift that the other person doesn't deserve. And you may say, well, Tom, you don't know what they did to me. You don't know how much it hurts. Well, for you to give them forgiveness would be a gift they do not deserve. And you say, well, Tom, I don't even like talking with this person. I mean, they annoy me to no end. And well, a conversation with them would once again be a gift that they do not deserve. And you may say, Tom, but you have no idea. They, they could react. They could flip out on me. They may go off. Hey, how they respond is on them. But how you respond and what you do defines who you are your character, your heart, the things God cares about. In your bulletin outline, you've got three blanks, and you may have been waiting for the answers to those three blanks, but this morning, only you know the answer to those three blanks. In other words, my challenge for you today and through this week is that you allow God to place on your heart the names of people you know, people you know that maybe you need to reconcile with, Maybe you need to give a gift of forgiveness they don't deserve. Maybe you need to ask for forgiveness even though you don't deserve it. Maybe the name that God places on your heart isn't somebody who's wronged you or you've wronged them, but you know they've just been wronged lately. And and words of death have been spoken into their life. They have been devalued and you know you're not gonna be that person. You're gonna go to them and speak words of life into their ears, words of value into their lives because that's who you are. And that when you walk out out of this building today, you will be the church that goes and loves and values the lives, the names God has placed on your heart as you place them on that piece of paper. See, I think often God wants to change our perspective 
before he addresses our problem. I think if we could just see it the way Jesus sees it. On our family vacation, we continued on to New Orleans and we dropped the van off at the dealer in New Orleans to fix our air conditioning. And they were nice enough to shuttle us into the French Quarter there in New Orleans. And we got to see all the sights and sounds and smells of New Orleans. And one of our favorite things about the French Quarter was actually the church that's there, the big Catholic church, the, the Basilica of St. Louis. And uh, we got to go in, beautiful building. In fact, when you walk down, you walk to the left, there's this big statue of Mary holding baby Jesus. And in fact, I got a picture of my my kids. It looks like they're bowing down to Mary, but they're actually just really tired. And uh, (laughs) we'd been walking a lot and uh, plush carpet felt nice. And and that's on the left, but on the right side, if you were to walk over, is a statue of Joseph holding baby Jesus. And I think we got a picture. And and then a crucifix, the statue of Jesus on the cross. And below those statues, there's this big glass case and it's filled with all these golden like chalices and goblets and it's just beautiful. And uh, I asked my kids, I said, hey kids, did you see Jesus over there? And my five-year-old Mason said, yeah, did you see all his trophies? (laughs) And I just played along like, yeah, he's won like three Stanley Cups. I mean, Jesus rocks. Yeah. But I thought about it. Jesus does have trophies. Look around you. Jesus looks at every life on this earth as a valuable possession. Why, why, how can you tell whether it's valuable or not? By what somebody else is willing to pay for it. And for Jesus, he was willing to die, to pay with his life for every single individual on this earth. And his most valuable trophy, the one he likes to show off the most, his church, his bride. I don't know about you, but I remember parts of my wedding day. I remember standing down at the altar, the double doors opening, and there's Erica, and she walks down the aisle to me. And after that, I don't remember much. I know we laughed. I know we cried. I know people said stuff, and songs were sung, and we did rituals. I don't really remember it in detail. I have to watch the video because I was just so enamored to be standing in the presence of my bride. And I think this morning, Jesus isn't as disappointed in us as is he is just enamored to be in the presence of his bride. We're the biggest trophy and he can't wait to show us off to the rest of the world so that we can speak words of life. We can show people how they are valued in the sight of Jesus. In a moment, we're going to close out in a song of worship. I want to invite our prayer partners to come on forward. And if you've never given your life to Jesus, if you've never got to be the trophy on the shelf for the rest of the world to see, you are loved and valued by the most important man who's ever walked this earth. And he wants a relationship with you. And we invite you into that relationship. We invite you to come down as we sing or to stay after in the service and enter into a relationship with Jesus. And our prayer partners can help you do that. For the rest of us, we have a job to do. And it starts today and it starts when we move out is to show the world how valued and loved they are by God and to show it from the people who know it more than anyone else, his bride, his church. Will you stand up, church? Will you worship the God who is so good? Will you place those names he has placed on your hearts before him? And will you allow the world to see his beauty through our words and actions? Let's sing.